This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 40, Varan. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of, ta- of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherschel. And I'm John LeMay. And that's right, listeners. And with us today is John LeMay, writer of many nonfiction Kaiju books, two which I now have on my bookshelf and have read, and they're very good. And they're uh, very enlightening about just learning about what's behind the scenes with a lot of these movies. Thank you for joining us, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy this episode. Well, thank you, Brian. I'm glad to be your your guest co-host for uh, this episode. In this episode, we will be covering the 1958 film Varan, or Daikaiju Varan, and also that American version, Varan the Unbelievable. Yes, so we need to do this very last black-and-white movie of the season on Varan, which is an underestimated movie, I think, uh, at least the uh, Japanese version is. The related topic for this episode is the Hisabetsu Buraku. But before we start discussing and analyzing this wonderful film, I will be reading the film description, which is part one of the podcast. It is our original method to present the facts about the movies. You're listening to KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. Varan is a force of nature. He is a triphibian prehistoric dinosaur classified as a varanopod, resembling both the Draco genus of flying dragons and the Varanus genus of monitor lizards, among other things. The villagers refer to him as Mountain God Baradagi. He's violent towards humans and destructive when provoked. Dr. Kenji Uozaki is an enterprising entomologist sent to western Tohoku to figure out what happened to two researchers who were killed under mysterious circumstances while in the same area. Yuriko Shinjo is an independent and capable reporter and the sister of one of the researchers who was killed. She and fellow reporter Motohiko Horiguchi document the extraordinary events that unfold. Dr. Sugimoto is an adept scientist leading the effort to find a way to neutralize Varan. Assisting him is Dr. Fujimura, a talented scientist who works with explosives. The human and kaiju plots are unified. Virtually everything the human characters do is related to the kaiju. Varan is the issue at hand. First, they launch chemicals into the saltwater lake that Varan is in, with no effect. They then use tanks and 24 twin rocket cars, then fighter jets, then naval artillery, then depth charges, then fighter jets, 24 twin rocket cars, and tanks once again, once Varan arrives at Haneda. Dr. Fujimura's dam-busting bombs are loaded into an army vehicle and detonated under Varan, causing some injury, but he continues on his path of destruction. The problem is finally solved when more of the dam-busting bombs are attached to parachutes with flares. Varan, attracted to the light from the flares, eats the bombs which then detonate inside him. After he retreats to the ocean, the final bomb explodes, killing him. The story, written by Ken Kurunoma and screenplay by new Toho writer Shinichi Sekizawa, is a simple and focused story with some of Sekizawa's trademarks humor, some archetypal characters that reappear often in later stories, and a plot that doesn't get bogged down in details. Budget figures are not available for the film, but there is not as much money or care put into this as it was made for TV production originally. The special effects, headed by Eiji Tsuburaya, are not as great this time around, and it was to be a direct-to-television production. The overall quality is below average, comparable to Godzilla Raids Again, lacking polish in places. The lake area towards the beginning of the movie is good, and the outdoor photography in the wilderness. Akira Ikefube's music is above average and is used in future films. Being a Sekizawa script, the movie has a lighter tone than previous Toho Kaiju entries like the original Godzilla and Rodan. There is a moderate level of gravity because Varan is treated as a serious threat. There is a tense atmosphere in the movie, especially leading up to Varan's appearance but the formulaic aspects of the rest of the movie don't build on that as much. 
between reality and fantasy is more on the side of depicting extraordinary events in a realistic setting. Varan is not a stylistically experimental film, as it utilizes many existing kaiju tropes. However, Varan, created by Ken Kuronoma and first portrayed by Hiro Nakajima, is a relatively experimental kaiju, given his ability to swim in water, glide in air, and walk on land. The film reinforces the style of Godzilla Raids again, with its similar plot elements and lighter tone compared to most other 50s kaiju movies. Varan is a unique film in that it was designed originally as a made-for-TV production in cooperation with American company ABC. It was intended for television audiences in Japan and in the U.S., and it's safe to assume that it was targeted to an audience interested in kaiju films as this audience was growing. It's a safe and standard monster-on-the-loose film that fits into the medium it was meant for. The film was released in Japan on October 14, 1958. Box office and earnings figures for this film are not readily available, but it is safe to say it wasn't a hugely successful film. However, the American version made good money because it was bought very cheaply due to the favorable exchange rate. It doesn't have as much of a fan following, though there is a sizable amount of the fan base that likes the kaiju. Tokyo Shock released the Japanese version on DVD in 2005. The Japanese version is rated 5.6 on that movie database, and the American version is rated 5.0. Somehow. The American version of this movie is famously bad. The original 87-minute movie was reduced to 70 minutes. It was created by the Corey Film Corporation. It stars Myron Healy, among other TV actors. Besides making massive cuts and concentrating on the Myron Healy character, some radical changes done to the American version include dubbing Varan's roar, cutting the part where Varan glides through the air, having much of the events in the movie take place on an island, and only referencing Varan as Obaki. It was released in American theaters on December 7, 1962 by Crown International Pictures on a double bill with First Spaceship on Venus. The forces at play include the clash between civilized humanity versus primitive, isolated, and superstitious natives in the natural world. Varan's death is portrayed as yet another win for humanity in his conquest of Earth. The movie places significant faith in the ability of science to be able to solve problems that threaten humanity. The moral of the story is that even though humanity has entered the space age, there are still undiscovered places, people, and things here on Earth. The movie ends with the narration saying, After a desperate struggle, man has won another victory. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and discussion section. Uh, First, we'll say about how uh, we encountered this film for the first time. I saw Varan for the first time in uh, about late 2000s. I don't remember exactly what year. I think I just saw it once, and it was something that I thought, okay, that was pretty good. And then I just not forgot about it, but just sort of shelved it. And I know it was the Japanese version, because the American version is so radically different than uh, what what the other one is. And so I, I have probably watched it five, six, seven times now in, in the past couple of weeks preparing for this episode. This isn't really one that I watched all that much, but uh, I still like it. I first heard of Varan through uh, Ian Thorne's Godzilla book. So for me, Varan was definitely the most mysterious of all of uh, Toho's monsters. And the only other thing I really knew about Varan was he was in one movie and he was also in Destroy All Monsters, which I didn't see for many years. So this will tell you what what I really think of Varan. I don't remember whether I saw the Japanese version first or the American version, but I know probably when I was around 11 years old, I got a bootleg Japanese version that I watched, you know, without subtitles. So I really couldn't appreciate it. You know, it was kind of boring. And um, I know at some point I found the VHS for Varan the Unbelievable at Suncoast Video back in the days of VHS, and I I watched that, and I don't think I was terribly impressed with that either. The making of this film is way different from a lot of the rest of these that that I've done, whether it's been Godzilla or whether it's been Toho Tokusatsu. So I wanted to see, because you know a lot about this, John, because uh, you did an article in um, G-Fan about this just recently, and that was very enlightening. But yeah, the story behind this is uh, actually a lot more interesting than the story itself in the movie. Yes, it's definitely a unique situation. Um, Varan was potentially Toho's first 
U.S. Japan co-production. It ultimately didn't go through that way. But uh, an American uh, producer of television movies, we don't actually know for sure who it was, but the, the best bet is ABC. They approached Toho about doing a made-for-TV movie about a giant monster. Part of the reason why Varan's story is so simple is because, again, they thought it was going to be a simple uh, four-part miniseries. Ken Kuronuma, he has something interesting to say about the, the writing process of the film. Kuronuma says, quote, Rodan had arrived in the U.S., and a request came from America to Toho. Tomiyuki Tanaka approached me, asking me to come up with something, anything. So Kuronuma's quote sounds kind of desperate, like, please come up with something quick. And uh, same thing with Shinichi Sekizawa. Koji Kajita, the assistant director, says, quote, We told Sekizawa to keep it basic and simple. It was fun. And that's really what Varan is, very basic and simple. Now, our confusion with Varan comes uh, with how many episodes did they really want this proposed miniseries to comprise of. And Ashiro Honda himself said, quote, We had been shooting based on the premise of three episodes, uh, end quote. Now, as I've researched this, um, I think uh, Honda, he was, you know, misremembering. I, I've recently found some confirmation in a Japanese magazine called Tokusatsu Haiho that it was for a fact going to be four episodes, like a four-episode miniseries. And to kind of go in, into more detail, so adding to the confusion on this miniseries is if you have the Brand the Unbelievable DVD from Media Blasters, you will actually see a TV version of Varan, and that was never actually aired. It was created just for the DVD. It's a special TV version of Varan. It runs 54 minutes, and if you actually watch it, you can tell it's actually two distinct episodes split into two. Um, so, I, you know, that confuses people because if it was supposed to be a four-part series, then why are there just uh, two on this DVD? So had it been actually in four parts... It would have been a lot longer. If you watch the special feature on the DVD of the TV version, you'll notice it has additional sequences. Now, the footage itself is lost, but the audio remains. So you'll hear um, audio from characters that you can't see talking about Varan emerging from the lake. So um, extra footage was shot just for the TV version. And I believe what happened was in the middle of production. They decided to make it a feature film, and they quit shooting the additional footage for the TV version. So that's why, in the end, Toho only had like a two-part as opposed to a four-part. And um, after they finished uh, shooting the film, and, and Brian and I will digress and talk about when it switched from being a, a television series to a film... But Toho, actually, when they had finished shooting the movie, they did still send uh, two episodes to America. It was called uh, Varan Appears for Part 1 and Varan's Counterattack for Part 2. And that's it was never, ever aired anywhere, anywhere. And again, that's why it appears on the DVD just as a special feature. Yeah, so there's actually three versions of this movie. Because <laughs> it's got the American version, the Japanese version, and then this uh, this interesting TV version, too. Yes. 54 minutes, that's kind of short, and then dividing that into two. And again, just to reiterate what's so interesting, again, if you watch it, it's like an extended version of the sequence where Varan emerges from the lake. So in other words, there's additional, technically not additional scenes, but additional audio scenes within this particular segment. So it would have been extended by quite a bit had they completed it. When I was watching the, even just the Japanese version of this, it seems like there was kind of a back and forth, a rhythm to this movie. I can see how you could divide it up and it would still be entertaining because we have lull in the action and then we get some nice action for a while and then we go out of that and then we go to more action and then we go out of that and then it's like I think four times that that happens. Because we have our air battle, we have the naval battle, we have the first battle when he emerges from the lake, and, and then uh, the very ending part in uh, the airport. And, and But it seems like there's, it, you know, if this was divided into two parts on this TV part, then it would make sense because the action would be balanced between the two. 
instead of having the action, you know, towards the end, because some of the Godzilla movies, for instance, they have all of this action in the last half hour, which would be, uh, you know, like the second half if it was a TV uh, production. So you, it would be really weird to watch the first half and have almost nothing happen. But in this, there's there's action sort of evenly dispersed throughout. That's exactly right. And I have right in front of me, actually, um, and this is relatively new information from Japan and Tokusatsu Haiho. It, it has the breakdown of all four episodes. So episode one, Varan appears, was originally just supposed to be Varan emerging from the lake. He destroys the village. He goes back in. Episode two, Raid of Varan, um, is that whole sequence where Varan emerges for the second time and he fights the military out in the forest and then, you know, he takes off into the sky and that's the end of part two. Um, episode three was to be Varan advances and that's, like you said, where that whole swim to Tokyo fighting the Navy happens and then finally part four, Varan's counterattack is that big climax at Haneda Airport. I, you can tell, yeah, there's just kind of a rhythm, which is uh, is nice though because this this movie doesn't have a lot, you know, in the story. It's almost like I want to just grade this movie on a curve. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like, well, it was intended for television for the most part. And w when it was being all planned out and everything, and that just wasn't the case with pretty much all these Godzilla movies that have already been covered on Kaiju Vision. And then they weren't planned in this in this way and then with this process. Well, I know you can clear this up for me, but when I was looking on IMDb, it, it almost made the impression that it was filmed one way in the beginning. It, they said that it went from Academy up to Toho Panscope, which means implies that it was stretched. But then I read other stuff and I'm like, wait a minute, this, this is saying it was cropped. And that's what it looks like when I'm looking at it on the screen is that it was cropped. So maybe you can uh, shed some light on this. Sure, Croft is exactly right, and the nice thing is we can get it from Mishiro Honda himself. He told uh, David Milner in, in Cult Movies, uh, quote, After we had shot five or six scenes in the standard 35mm format required for television, or in other words, you know, full screen, my words, Toho decided to show the movie in theaters as well as on television. We at first planned to simply reshoot the scenes in the wider cinemascope format used in theaters, but we were in a rush. So we just cropped the existing film to fit the cinemascope format, end quote. So in simpler terms, it's basically the opposite of pan and scan. You know, pan and scan is where you have a widescreen film. You chop off the edges to make it fit what used to be the old square TVs. Um, but in Varan's case, uh, they actually cut off the the top and the bottom of the screen to convert it into widescreen. And uh, Tokusatsu Hayo actually has some of the original uh, full-screen film cells that they, they published images of in the recent issue. So it's it's a proven fact. Varan was shot in, you know, the Academy ratio or full-screen. And that also gets us to the part about how rushed this movie was, too, which is another reason why I almost want to grade this movie on a curve is because they didn't have a bunch of time to throw this together. I mean, a lot of these Godzilla movies, they weren't even they weren't even made in all that, you know, long of a time. In the mid 60s, they were just, you know, cranking these things out like 3 3 in a year. Yeah, and that's another uh there's another good Hondo quote about how rushed this movie was. He he says, you know, quote, "This change was forced upon us. We were shooting things so that they looked big and powerful on the small screen." But suddenly we had to take the same footage and try to make the same impression for the big screen. It just doesn't work that way. We had a very hard time adjusting it. The desk side planners just did not understand how the filming side worked, end quote. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now that a lot of TV, you know, it seems like a movie, uh, like some of the really amazing shows that have been out. Uh, and they can be quite cinematic, too, by themselves. But back then, this was not the case. And you were doing all the cinematic stuff in the cinema itself. And TV was just this upstart sort of thing that was uh, in the process of taking everything over over the decades. So because this is a podcast that does a whole lot of uh, emphasis on writing and trying to concentrate on the story a little bit more, Sekizawa, this was his first job, as we mentioned in part one. And you can tell there's humor in it a little bit. Uh, the characters are pretty cool. They are some of the archetypes that Sekizawa kept using are in this movie. 
especially Yuriko. And it sets up a lot of things that Sekizawa would do later. And I could have used a little bit more humor in the second half of the movie, but I'm, I'm okay with it. I, I don't have to put all that many requests into this movie. But I do like the Yuriko character. She's pretty tough. Yeah, uh, Sekizawa almost always used uh, scientists and reporters. Those were usually his favorite uh, archetypes to use, and also detectives pretty often. So these same archetypes, they always reappear in the future films. Um, I do want to say, uh, to be specific, Varan was his first uh, writing gig for Toho, but he had actually done other films before that. He was actually a co-producer on a movie called Children of the Beehive in 1948, and he was a co-producer slash co-director on Buddha and the Children in 1952. And most impressive of all, Sekizawa wrote and directed a sci-fi film for Shinto in 1956 called Fearful Attack of the Flying Saucers. So Varan was just his first, you know, Toho gig. I almost want to make some out-of-the-world reference and say that, that maybe Yuri from GMK is was inspired by this character, Yuriko, in this movie and she's just like a like a 2.0 version in a GMK like you know strong woman reporter maybe they're kind of a lot of uh, similarities she's smart she's got backbone I just kind of see that a lot in there well I hadn't thought of it so you just brought it up but you know since GMK technically was supposed to be Angurus Miranda uh-huh. Bearground maybe it was based on that character so I think you've got a point there and they were already they put part of Varan into uh, Ghidorah, right? Too that like the face. That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I sort of wonder where where Yuri and GMK came from because really we got Yuriko and Varan, and the, the similarities are piling up. And she's not scared like that Horiguchi guy is, and like Horiguchi is like the comic relief character playing this uh, like a proto Frankie Sakai from Mothra situation. But you can see a lot of uh, Sekizawa in in this movie. Speaking of projects that were left undone, Sekizawa wrote a scene where children were doing their impressions of Varan. He was way ahead of the curve by trying to put kids into movies like this. I don't believe it was actually filmed, actually. But yeah, kids weren't appearing in Godzilla movies until the second half of the 1960s. And here we are in 1958 with uh, an attempt, at least, of uh, trying to get children involved. The Ikafube soundtrack is pretty good, actually, even considering what this movie ended up, you know, being sort of an underperformer. But I do like the music in it, and Ikafube ends up using sometimes the same melody from this in uh, other movies. And I believe this was also in the uh, the first Ghidorah, and then it got used again in uh, Godzilla vs. Gigan. And it's that very uh, specific melody. It was the one that they sang on a Saturday Night Live when uh, Godzilla 98 was coming out. Yes. Um, to me, the two things that really stand out about Varan are the excellent suit that was constructed and also the music. It's a really a huge standout for Ifukube's score. And a lot of those themes he would uh, kind of regurgitate in later years and perfect. And you would hear them quite a bit. And I think even in 1991's Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, you could hear some of uh, the Varan music. And also the natives theme towards the beginning too, because that and a melody is very similar to that. It ended up being used for uh, the opening titles to uh, King Kong versus Godzilla from 1962. And to take it just a step further, um, when Varan is approaching the, the boat of fishermen from behind, some of the music actually kind of sounds like Jaws by John Williams. It predates that. And I would even say that the native chant even is a little bit similar to the chant from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, also by John Williams. Oh my gosh, I did not think about that. So sometimes I wonder if Williams had ever seen, he would have to have seen the Japanese version of Varan, of course, because I think for the U.S. version, they actually cut out most of the score. So I wonder. Yeah, the American version really butchered the, really excised uh, pretty much all of that soundtrack. Going more to the atmosphere of this movie, we, we have this mentioned as the Tibet of Japan, and it's, it's in uh, western Tohoku region. Yeah, the village is called uh, the Iwaya Village. It's in the Kunishiroshima Valley. I didn't 
see anything in uh, on Google Earth with this name, but uh, I, it is mentioned a, f- a few times in the American version. They really love that word. Yes, and to specify in the American version, they call it Kuno Shiroshima, and they change it from the mountains of Japan to an an outlying uh, island off the coast of Japan for some reason. Yeah, they made a lot of uh, changes to this. There's all of the fog and this whole the, – and the movie talks a lot about mystery and how there's all of this mystery still left in the world even though we're already in the space age. They mentioned mystery of uh, in the 20th century, which that made me think about that because that, that's in another movie too. I believe it's the first Ghidorah, right? That's right. Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. That's what uh, Yuriko Hoshi's character works at Mysteries of the 20th Century. Yeah, when she's she's throwing off all the astronomers, she, uh, at the beginning of this movie, yeah. I like to pretend that's actually a continuation of the the journalistic uh, program in Varan, even though I know it's not. But I like to think that just in my own little world. Yeah, I, I I thought I may as well think that way. The Sekizawa was incredibly notorious for using similar-sounding uh, names, like there was Professor Mirai and Mothra, and then it became Professor Murai and Ghidorah, and you think they're the same character, but they're actually not. Yeah, it's just like we have Goromaki showing up all the time in uh, Godzilla movies, too, even though it's not obviously not the same guy. <laughs> yep. So in the Japanese version, he is referred to as Mountain God Baradagi. And it's part of this insular culture, backward deformities. We'll be talking about the Hisabetsu Brockman in uh, part three, so we'll learn more from there. The movie was delayed on VHS release until last, uh, because uh, Toho kind of knew about this sort of little cultural insensitivity. As you may recall, uh, Half Human, the story of the abominable snowman, was banned in Japan uh, and still is today because of an insensitivity believed mostly towards the Ainu people, but also the Hitsubetsu Brockman. The ceremonial worship of Varan, that, that's really going into a lot of uh, kaiju tropes all, already in this movie. Is We have the whole thing of this predictable moment, really, where we have the outsiders like right behind them as they're worshiping uh, their God and, and you know, everybody's watching them. And then all of a sudden they're like, Hey, who's the, who are these people? And they're like, oops, oh geez, we're standing right behind you. I figured you'd probably turn around and see us at some point. So then they get caught. And then there's uh, all of the sort of predictable things that ensue, but at least in this, they're not, you know, attacked or uh, sacrificed or whatever, like in uh, the King Kong remake or anything like that. There is, a, I have to make this because I really love dogs, but there's a very rare appearance of a dog in a kaiju movie. Uh, Final Wars is another one that I think about. And of course I like it. It's a Shiba Inu, which is a, a dog that's native to Japan. And this is the dog that starts running away uh, from the uh, village and then the child runs after it. And the child runs into what is assuredly mortal danger. And his mother is screaming and screaming for him to return. And that's actually some of the best acting in the movie. Right there is her being that mortified. And she was really putting her heart into it. And she's totally just practically an extra. Uh, But it's a tense moment. And it's well done. Like the way that it's set up. Like that, that part of the movie right there was pretty good. It actually got you uh, concerned and it got you sort of involved into the movie. I liked it. And obviously the, probably the funniest part in the movie is the part where Horiguchi tells the other media people to use a wide angle lens because it's a really big monster. I really like that. It's also ironic considering it was shot in widescreen and then, or I mean, it was <laughs> shot in full screen and then cropped. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's that's very Sekizawan, that, that line. It's, it's really good. And that's something that you can really only use once in a kaiju movie and with, without it being uh, completely ruined. Because if you do it a second time, it won't be good. But this is a really good way to land a joke like that. It's just great. <laughs> I first just thought this was really funny, the part right after this, because... The villagers seem very easy to convince that their superstition is is just totally BS about Varan because nobody's seen Varan in the village. It's all it's out there. One of those kind of things. And the whole village goes with them the second time. And I guess all they needed to be told was that, you know, this kid's life was in danger and boom, the superstition is just gone. 
And I, I wish it was that easy to, to get people to not believe in superstitions to just say, well, it's a matter of life and death going on here. Who do you care about? What do you care about that? But what's funny is that, is that the villagers don't ever see Varan in their entire lives. And then right after they're convinced that Varan is a superstition, Varan appears and destroys their entire village and kills a whole bunch of them, including uh, the priest of the village. And the, their their superstition is proven to be exactly right. It, it, you really don't see that very much in movies. And, and then Varan flattens the priest, so he didn't even get to tell the villagers, I told you so. So he doesn't even get that satisfaction. But it was really it was really funny. And I don't I don't know who was responsible for it, if that was all Sekizawa, if it was somebody else, or if it was just a different scenario to the setup of the of the natives, you know, worshiping the kaiju. But I just thought it was funny at first. But there is a more serious subtext to this, and that is the part of the story uh, where the crux of the matter is that the outsiders get all of these natives killed and their village destroyed and their village elder flattened. But they aren't the ones that pay the price for it. The natives are the one who pay the price for it. And it's a theme that was actually relatively common in post-war Japanese uh, stories and cinema because uh, it's, it links back to the whole aspect of what happened during the Great Pacific War. Uh, and it was about Japan's military system pretty much getting the country destroyed and a whole bunch of people killed. And, and, and it was the, an, another way to do a story where you know the people in charge of making this change were were not the ones who ended up paying for it and just and once you see that theme it's really interesting because i don't really i don't think i've ever seen this happen in an american movie i don't know either if it was it was either sekizawa or was kuranoma that came up with the idea or possibly even ishiro honda but definitely yeah an interesting uh story concept there there are some rather long takes on varan and in his rampage through the village and uh, about 24 minutes in is, is when that starts. He's you know, walking around on all fours and he's destroying everything. And it actually is one of the longest takes I've ever seen of a monster destroying something. Because usually when you're doing all this action, you do all these really quick cuts. Uh, and so either, either it was rushed or they actually just you know, let it go. And usually it's a lot of very quick cuts. Uh, especially stuff like in um, the first Ghidorah film, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, when he's destroying Tokyo, is a lot of uh, very quick cuts. And it's all just boom, 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 with the sort of Russian constructivist composition. Also, the part with Yuriko getting trapped under the fallen tree and having to be rescued, that made me think of Aegon. Because in Aegon... It's this woman, and she is, you know, really close to, to Aegon and in mortal danger, and she keeps trying to get away from him. But it reminded me of, of what uh, Sekizawa would do later with Aegon. Yes, yeah, since, since you brought up the scene with the tree, I, I have to throw it out there. There was actually a deleted scene later where you would have seen Yuriko recovering in the hospital from that injury, and Kinji was going to go see her. And that's one of the extra scenes that was scripted for episode three of Ran when it was a TV movie, but... Um, I'm not sure if they ever filmed it or if they filmed it and lost the footage, but I know it was definitely in the script. It's funny, that also reminds me of GMK, and then she's in the hospital? Yeah, yeah, so maybe maybe our, our theory <laughs> we're coming up with is right. And, uh, maybe I need to do a whole separate episode on uh, the similarities between Varan and GMK. It's one of the rare instances where a main character gets hurt is in uh, GMK. So talking about Varan, because Varan's an interesting kaiju. So he's a Varanopod, and he's a holdover from the times of the dinosaurs. And I like that he can walk on all fours and on his hind legs sometimes, and that he can sort of glide slash fly. And then the spikes on his back are very nice. I like that design has some characteristics of a monitor lizard as well. And his last appearance was in 1968 in Destroy All Monsters. I wish that Toho would bring Varan back for a movie again, but at this time it seems rather unlikely. Uh, I like that Varan is trifibian. You know, he can fly, swim, and he can walk on land. There's also the relation to a flying squirrel. And so there's just so many different things thrown into this one kaiju. And it's an, it is an original idea, but it's also it's kind of like a Frankenstein of a bunch of other ideas all put together. 
And Varan is different enough from Godzilla that I don't think of him as a Godzilla knockoff or anything. And as more kaiju movies were created, uh, Sekizawa famously said how there are no more monsters uh, later in his career. And this is true, because you can only have so many permutations of all these different kaiju characteristics and attributes. I love how Varan does not have a beam, though, and we don't have to sit through various beam battles uh, later. I'm, I'm glad they haven't done that. Um, there's one of the characters, the, uh, the actual figures of Varan, talks about Varan's origin, and it says that he also has, he's in the same family, kind of, as Rodan, probably because of the flying ability. But that's rather interesting, too. But it was, it was a toy, and it said that he's actually related to uh, Rodan. Interesting. And then Varan is also related to uh, the Draco, which is the genus of uh, flying dragons. And this is where that flying ability comes from. The connection to yokai is interesting. Uh, the Kappa is the yokai that Varan is most closely related to. And the Kappa is an amphibious demon that dwells in ponds and rivers. And if it dries out or if the water in the bowl on its head spills, then it could die. And they like cucumbers and they like sumo wrestling. They don't like iron, sesame, or ginger. Their behavior can range from just mischievous acts like looking up a woman's kimono uh, to dangerous acts like such as murder, rape, uh, kidnapping, uh, and drowning people. But uh, there, there is a little bit of a, a yokai uh, connection because of the way he's uh, in the water uh, at the beginning, and then he comes out and then uh, engages in all these activities that are uh, not all that good. Yeah, and to touch upon what you'd said earlier about uh, being in the same family as Rodan, etc., I, I think Varan really was meant to be a combination of Godzilla, Rodan, and Anguirus, because, you know, he can fly like Rodan, he, he's a quadruped like Anguirus, he has the spikes, and then he can also walk uh, upright in a bipedal stance like Godzilla. So mm -hmm. I definitely fig think that figured into his creation and his design, um, certainly. And it makes, it makes sense that you would have uh, something like this, because you can only do Godzilla so many times. I mean, not the, the movies, but just the design. And, and, they're, and like in Pacific Rim, in these movies that have other kaiju in them, they have all these interesting uh, patterns and how they look. And, uh, and they, I guess they're unique, too, but they're just ones that aren't, you know, not every kaiju has its own movie. Uh, but this one does. Yeah, and to talk about his other lone film appearance in Destroy All Monsters, you know, fans think he only has two scenes in the movie. He actually has three, if you really look closely. Um, in the first scene in the Monsterland Control Center, believe it or not, on one of those monitors, if you look up close, you can see Manda and Varan. Not together, they're in different monitors, but you have to look really close, but you can actually tell... That's who are on these other uh, screen monitors. So he actually has three scenes in uh, Destroy All Monsters. <laughs> I'll have to press pause the next time I look at that because I think I think I think most people are concentrating on a uh, Son of Godzilla uh, yeah. when they're looking at all those monitors, and then <laughs> they probably didn't uh, their eyes didn't go towards Varan as much. Well, how you can tell her there's these publicity photos of Varan and Amanda both that you think don't appear in the film, but they actually do. Um, there's one of Varan uh, leering over a rock, and that's actually the scene that you see on the monitor is, is that little Varan puppet, puppet kind of uh, coming up over right. a rock. So it's actual, actually the third piece of our original footage of Varan in the film. Um, and also after Destroy All Monsters, believe it or not, uh, Varan was at one point scripted for what became Godzilla vs. Gigan. What happened was Shinichi Sekizawa wrote a script, and in his script, he had Godzilla, Rodan, and Varan taking on Gigan, King Ghidorah, and this new alien monster called Mogu. So I think maybe Sekizawa had a kind of a soft spot for Varan, because that was the first uh, Toho monster movie he ever wrote. Maybe he just wanted to bring the monster back. And I would guess the main reason he got the cut pretty quick was there just was no Varan suit to actually use, as opposed to Anguirus, where there was a suit. So... That's probably why poor old Varan got the axe from Godzilla vs. Gigan. Most of the, the more diehard Godzilla fans really would have preferred GMK to be Baragon, Varan, and Anguirus as opposed to Mothra and King Ghidorah. Toho was just looking at 
the big box office numbers, they felt like more people would be interested in seeing Mothra and King Ghidorah return, which I, I don't necessarily think was true at the point of the Millennium films. I, I think the Millennium films had lost so much interest by the time that they were released, it really wouldn't have made a difference which monsters they used, but that's just my opinion. It might not have, and I think they were just probably going for, like, people who make movies they, they the way that they put actors into movies. You know, it's almost like, well, do we want these less popular actors that a lot of people like, or do we want the most popular actors? It's kind of like they were just working with uh, actors who were human beings, too, but... Uh, yeah, I, I get that, and I and I don't think that it would have made much of a difference. So the, the the where's all the wind coming from in this uh, the first half of the movie? Because we we have all this fog and the atmosphere is really great and everything, but then we get all the wind, which I'm guessing is created by Varan. But uh, yeah, but the wind un, kind of undermines the fog. You can't really have both at the same time. Yeah. I think the wind is tied into that yokai aspect you, you brought up earlier, that Varan has kind of like the supernatural aspect to him. So I, I would say that's the answer. That's a really cool uh, principle, too, to have a sort of natural disaster, or at least a natural at- atmosphere sort of uh, sort of pervading the, the kaiju. And, and the part about Varan uh, and his skin, they say that the skin isn't hard, it's just that everything bounces off of him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, wait a minute, that's actually a good idea. That's something you can probably only do once. It's a unique idea. And then after this is sort of like obligatory things, obligatory air battle. We have our sea battle scenes that are a little long, but you need to show people stuff in this because it's action, so you got to have it. I feel like this movie had trouble with keeping momentum. Like the first half was all unique and interesting, and a lot of it was in this outdoor atmosphere. But then we go to uh, by the numbers way of uh, making a kaiju film. You know, we get our air battle, sea battle, depth charges. We even have our landing vehicles. It's like a it's like a mini invasion on the coast of Normandy sort of thing there at Haneda with the uh, the troops uh, the troop ships uh, unloading. Yeah, and I would definitely say uh, just that the pacing problem was basically due to that episodic nature where it really was, you know, meant to be four episodes focusing on this aspect and that aspect. So, yeah, it definitely had an effect on the momentum. And then the, the plane crashes right into Varan. You really can't blame him for that, can you? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's an impressive plane, though. The model that, that crashes into him, it's huge. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like that's almost um, a scale issue, too. I, I felt like... Because the fighters were a lot smaller. But yeah, I, was, I wondered where this, these uh, the big, huge model for this plane came from. But I was like, wow, that is big. And I, yeah, I agree. It's probably scale. You're probably right. I bet those naval destroyers and the, the planes probably came from one of Toho's old war movies and they were recycled. That's just a guess. Yeah, I could see where it would come from a war movie. That makes sense. The water explosions, they look good, especially the one with the uh, the multiple depth charges all circling him, all going off at once. That looks pretty nice, actually. And even though it doesn't hurt Varan at all, but I think it's impressive. The music from the naval artillery attack scenes would eventually be used in uh, Godzilla vs. Gigan, in the parts where our human characters are doing their research on our Switzerland-based multinational corporation owned by the, uh, you know, cockroach aliens. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, it's a very military-ish uh, thing. But of course, a lot of, uh, a lot of what Ikafube did, a lot of it sounded like military marches when he got down to it. The bomb that Dr. Fujimura creates, it's an interesting bomb because they say out of nowhere that that he invented it, but then he has it all ready for a presentation there queued up, but he doesn't want to use it. But then it does great damage inside something, but not outside it. Yeah, that was definitely... Whoever thought of that, because a bomb is a bomb, I thought, but never mind. (laughs) Speaking of a a bomb is just a bomb, uh, I think the Ken Kuranuma's treatment just ended with a jet fighter crashing into a fuel reserve the airport right. and that engulfs Varan and kills him. So that was the original ending, which is a bit simpler. 
and it's a kaiju movie. I'm not, I'm not going to pull the, uh, you know, why isn't this realistic thing? I know this is probably, the kaiju genre is probably one of the genres that you least want to try to pull the reality card on. But it's, a, it's an awesome weapon, and as part of the fun is being able to have all these amazing weapons. And <laughs> definitely my favorite one is the Dimension Tide from uh, <laughs> Megaguirus. It's just so awesome. It's just pure kaiju uh, technology. Great technology for a kaiju film. Yeah, uh, this was, however, uh, it did injure Nakajima. Yeah, the uh, large explosion that was uh, sort of under him when the uh, vehicle is blown up. I do recall that. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and it burned him uh, some. Just bit. it was a pretty big explosion to have right under the suit. The model of Haneda Airport looks pretty good, actually. The buildings and. They would perfect this later with uh, another film that we're going to do, which is uh, War of the Gargantuas, where they had a wonderful uh, Haneda model and uh, set built up. But uh, it's pretty amazing to relocate the HQ uh, closer to the danger, <laughs> where they're like, we need to move our headquarters closer. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the opposite of Shin Godzilla. Uh, we need to get out of the blast zone kind of thing. And instead, it's like, well, we're going to go right to the airport and we're going to order everybody around right from there as if that's a safe place to conduct that kind of an operation. But there's lots of obligatory moments and events, and it's a pretty cut-and-dry movie, pretty standard in many ways. There are evacuation scenes, but there isn't one of those heavy-gravity kind of uh, hospital scenes uh, that, that shows everybody injured and all that, like uh, you know, GMK did that too. The idea of... Varan eating the flares and then attaching the bombs to the flares is clever. Uh, this had been done in a similar way to Godzilla raids again because of him being drawn to uh, fires and flares and stuff like that in the dark. And they're exploiting a uh, characteristic of Varan that ends up being his uh, downfall. Yeah, and that's that's a little more interesting and well thought out than another proto climax was instead of the flares they attached the bombs to balloons which he would have swallowed for who knows what reason so it definitely makes more sense to have him attracted to light and he swallows the flares the ending is slightly sad really because the whole story is about man having another triumph over nature and it's very much uh not they don't really milk it for the emotion as much as something like King Kong did. I don't know. At the end of the day, it's like, who cares about if humanity wins or whatever? I like Varan. <laughs> so yeah, they, they could have really uh, pushed it further, but there are already quite a few similarities to King Kong in this movie uh, already. The American version of this is pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah, and to be precise, they actually cut out 57 minutes of the Japanese footage and they added in 68 minutes of American footage. So it's pretty extreme. No, I'm sorry. They added in 40 minutes of the American footage. So it's pretty extreme cut. It's not like a funny kind of bad. It's more just a moderately painful uh, bad. And I've, I've seen a lot of bad movies. I'm a big mystery science theater fan. This movie, the American version, it just sits there. And even in moments when things happen, it seems like things really aren't happening. And I'm familiar with Myron Healy because I remember the MST3K movie, The Unearthly, which that also had uh, Carradine in it. And to, that to me is like a nine out of 10 on the pain scale, like the cinematic pain scale is way up there. The Unearthly is a very tough one to get through, even when you're watching the Mystery Science Theater version. And the actors in the American version of this are TV actors, so I'm not going to treat this like they're in the same league as movie actors. But Varan the Unbelievable, it makes me like the Japanese version more. When I Because I went back and I saw the Japanese version, and I was like, oh, this isn't all that bad. I was... <laughs> uh, again, I'm like grading it on a curve because comparing it to uh, the American version really is uh, rather amazing. I, I don't understand, though, that the IMDb ratings of these aren't further apart. I think which, people don't know what they're voting for, probably. I don't think just... so. Yeah, but it's like if, I'm sure this got to be a further apart than that. But... And the thing about Varan the Unbelievable is when you watch it, it makes you realize just how well done by comparison Godzilla King of the Monsters is with uh, Raymond Burr. Absolutely. You know, Raymond, yeah, Raymond Burr's character, Steve Martin, he's very likable. Um, the story flows well. 
Uh, he actually interacts with the Japanese cast. Uh, Myron Helian's ran the unbelievable as, uh, Commander Bradley. He's not very likable. He's very patronizing to his wife and, and the rest yeah. of the, the Japanese cast. He doesn't actually interact with any of the actors from the original Varan. Um, it's just, uh, it's very awkward and it brings the momentum to a standstill. Yeah, and it, it makes me want the Japanese actors back in the movie a lot. Uh, the sequence, though, the sequence involving fixing the broken radio, that had me on the edge of my seat. Yeah, well, maybe there was a problem with the American script. Who, who knows, maybe at one point they wrote Myron Healy into the command center scenes, and then they decided, oh, wait, we don't have the budget to try and match that set, so we'll just have him out on the Jeep radio. <laughs> who knows, because it's really awful. Yeah. And the acting is uh, pretty bad and the movie's not entertaining much at all. It's hilarious that the girlfriend thinks she's to blame for all the unfortunate occurrences because she convinced him to keep the people on this island, quote unquote, instead of making them evacuate. But then he tells her, oh, it's not anyone's fault, (laughs) even though I'm pretty sure some of this was his fault. Uh, And then other things in this movie, like they dubbed Varan's Roar. And that made me think of Gigantus the Fire Monster, which is another really bad American version of a a kaiju film. Yeah. And the first half hour is definitely the worst part of uh, this uh, American version. The the part about getting a chemical to turn salt water into fresh water was an intriguing idea, but really that's just window dressing. You know, it doesn't really go anywhere. And that's not really what's important in the movie. And, I'm not a fan of really any of these English language versions. Obviously, King of the Monsters of 1956 is the best one. But whether it's Gigantus the Fire Monster or any of these others, I don't really like them. I don't know if you saw the Mystery Science Theater related film called The Creeping Terror, uh, but, but it made me think of Creeping Terror. Cause it, no, I have not. We had, the, we had narrators, and that, that movie actually had two narrators. And then uh, all the canned music and uh, the, the sort of bad plot. American version pretty well uh, is not all that great. And you know about um, Crown International Pictures, the uh, group that made this? I know the name, and that's about it. Um, they did a few other sci-fi films. Um, did they do the Crater Lake Monster? Am I wrong? Is, is that one that they, that they did? Yes, they did. I, I just looked they at did. my notes. Uh, they did The Beast of Yucca Flats in 1961 and The Crater yes. Lake Monster in 1977. And there's probably and a few others. That's Those are just oh, the yeah. two that I picked out. The ones that stood out to me the most were Beast of Yucca Flats, The Skydivers, which is that uh, Coleman Francis one. You can't get much lower than that. And then uh, Catalina Caper. Uh, one of the older Mystery Science Theater episodes that uh, was one of the, I believe it was on volume one that they uh, released that of uh, on the Mystery Science Theater DVD collections and also Bloodlust and the Hellcats and Wild Rebels and the Sidehackers. All of those were Crown International Pictures. That is a frightening, frightening list. Yeah. And yeah. there's a lot more to this list too. If you look it up on uh, and look at what they all produced, but the, the, those ones that I mentioned were the ones that were absolutely some of the most infamous uh, mystery science theater episodes ever. And the, the corporation, it went to chapter 11 in 1992. So that's what ended up happening to crown international pictures. But yeah, especially beast of yucca flats and yeah, skydivers for sure. Oh my gosh. And we don't get to the next level of kaiju films until 1961's Mothra. Really? That's when really the prime part of the golden era of uh, Japanese cinema goes. The original Mothra is one of my favorite movies ever. And you can see quite a bit of it, the, of the way that he would create stories. You would, you'd, you saw it in this. And that's uh, one thing that's, that's really cool with uh, Varan. I do think Varan's failure might've actually led to the reason why Toho didn't do any giant monster movies for about two and a half years. Um, and something else I think is interesting is, you know, Tomiyuki Tanaka, he insisted that the Mysterians have a giant monster in it. That was 1957. But after Varan, uh, I don't think he insisted the same thing with Battle in Outer Space. There was no monster inserted into it. So I kind of wonder if Varan kind of soured him on giant monsters for just a little while. Yeah, it might have. 
Well, that concludes part two, and uh, I will move on to our related topic next. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. And for this episode, I had chose the Hisabetsu Baraku, uh, and that is because, like in episode 38 on Half Human, uh, this episode is an opportunity uh, to get a, a topic like this some exposure. I'll immediately uh, delve into very interesting history. The literal Japanese translation of Barakumen is Dwellers in Hamlets. The way this works is, is that Hisabetsu Baraku are discriminated communities. So that's the community, and then the Hisabetsu Barakumen are, is the often used term, and that it means people of the discriminated community. In 2016, the Abe government passed a bill through the Diet acknowledging discrimination against the Hisabetsu Baraku communities, and it says that the government should eliminate that discrimination. Now, when you have a caste system, and there are some who get preferential treatment and a prominent place in society, there are those who get excluded, and we get social pariahs. In the book Trust by Francis Fukuyama, he compares China and Japan's social structures. He wrote that Japan is like a block of granite, and China is like a pile of sand. The bonds of trust in Japan are very strong, but what do you get when the block of granite doesn't assimilate you? Well, you have to make do with what you have. You govern yourself, and you make a living, and you survive. Talking about this topic makes me think about other discriminated peoples. Every country seems to have them. The Ainu and the Ryukyuans in Japan are examples. The Roma in Europe are another. People with different gender identities and sexual orientation are discriminated against all over the world. In many parts of the world, particularly the Middle East, women are heavily discriminated against. Religious persecution in certain areas of the world is uh, particularly bad, as some countries are favorable towards one religion while rejecting the others. Going further back in Japan's history, which was uh, 1603 to 1868, so more recent history, uh, and that was during the Tokugawa Shogunate, that was when the caste system was developed. It lasted until 1871, when Emperor Meiji ordered it abolished. However, there remains residual discrimination afterwards because something like that doesn't just disappear. Even before the caste system was established, though, there were certain professions that were looked at as impure because of the concern of defilement. There's an entire class of jobs like this, including funeral services, grave diggers, undertakers, butchers, tanners, bounty hunters, executioners, even carnival workers, and also people who do menial work. There is a religious taboo with both Buddhism and Shinto in Japan that has problems with uh, jobs that involve defilement. Confucianism was the basis for the four-part caste system that lasted for uh, quite a while in Japan. First and foremost were the scholars, second were the farmers, third were the artisans and craftspeople, and then the merchants and traders uh, were the fourth one. And they had Barakamen even wear certain colors uh, to give everyone the heads up that, you know, this is what their place in society is. And that is the, the basis for the four-part caste system. There was these four parts and then uh, the Barakamen, uh, his bits of Barakamen that were uh, right there. They were kept in the occupations that they were specifically given to. In other words, it's a good way because there was no competition from other Japanese in these particular areas. And a lot of these were jobs that, that needed to be done. They were in certain districts by themselves often. And they were even autonomous somewhat with regards to governance. After the Meiji Restoration... There were a lot of things in Japan that got modernized, and so the, the Hisabetsu Barakumen got declassified, uh, but obvious things still existed. History goes a very long time in Japan. All of the families used to be registered so everyone knew what was going on. Baraku is a hereditary distinction, so the family registration, which was public, which was used to check up on who really was who. 
marriage discrimination was one of the key ways that the discrimination went against the Hitsubetsu Barakamen. So they would check to see if there was any connection to the Barakamen. This type of discrimination has been made illegal. It used to be nearly no one uh, would marry a Hisabetsu Barakumen, but now that is reversing substantially as a trend. As time went on, the government got around to setting up a policy of assimilation. Economic and infrastructure development of those communities began in order to level out the differences between them and the rest of Japan. These were called DOA projects. This effort really took off in the late 1960s, in 1969, a law, a special measures law, for assimilation projects was passed. It was to raise the standard of living in those communities, and that program ended in 2002, uh, sort of declaring a success. This issue of discrimination against the Hisabetsu Barakamen is more often in western Japan than in eastern Japan, particularly the Kansai region, and the biggest cities in that region are Osaka, Kyoto, and Kobe. Hiroshima uh, is also one that is prevalent, though. Even though there was a policy of assimilation, in 1975, there was a 330-page book being sold to many corporations and individuals which have the lists of names of all of the Hisabetsu Barakamen and even what their professions and addresses were. This book would then be used for employment discrimination, marriage discrimination, and whatever other discrimination that they saw fit to commit. The book was banned from being sold or produced. Even then, though, there are still copies floating around. Regarding economics, though, the Hisabetsu Barakamen were dealt a blow by the 1871 change to their status because it meant that other Japanese would be able to compete in the job fields that the Hisabetsu Barakamen had all the to themselves previously. This was another reason why nearly 100 years after the change in status, they needed economic development from the government to in order to raise their standard of living. The other blow to the Hisabetsu Barakamen was that the public data about all of these programs was public knowledge. So just like the book, the data could be used to discriminate in hiring and in marriage. The National Levelers Society was formed in 1922, and its goal was to level out the differences in society between the Hisabetsu Barakamen and the rest of the society. After the war, the BLL was formed, and that is what is called the Baraku Liberation League. This group says that there are many more Hisabetsu Barakamen than the official government numbers say, like three times more, three million versus one million. Nowadays, there isn't much, as much discrimination in Japan against the Hisabetsu Barakamen. The prevailing attitude now is that the jobs that someone's ancestors had is not important and in fact doesn't make sense anymore. Modern attitudes are changing people's outlooks, but there is still name-calling and sort of bigoted attitudes depending on where you go and who you talk to. An unfortunate incident occurred in 2001 when debate was going on about who would be the next prime minister. Taro Aso of the Liberal Democratic Party asked, We are not going to let someone from the Baraku become prime minister, are we? And Hiromu Nonaka withdrew his name from consideration for the PM position after Aso said that. Aso ended up becoming prime minister for a time, and he is currently now the finance minister in Prime Minister Abe's cabinet. By the late 2000s, a lot of the assimilation had taken place, and many in Japan considered the issue solved. However, like most social issues, this will never fully go away. This is a subject that not many in Japan talk about, and Japan is trying hard to make this issue go away, mostly by solving it with government programs and by public awareness, and by just letting things happen the way they are now. There is, of course, an argument going on regarding how best to solve the problem. It's the side of the argument that says there should be no labels and the side that says yes to labels. Some, including the Japanese Communist Party, say that making labels only makes it worse. However, that doesn't seem to be the prevailing attitude, but both sides have the same goal of ameliorating the difference. It's just about the method. I'd say that the most economic freedom possible would be the best way to uh, raise the standard of living for them, for sure and uh, allowing economic development to uh, be able to spread to as many people as possible. In America, the case with this kind of phenomenon is different. In the book Snobbery in America, the author said, 
in Europe, it's about who you are. And in America, it's about what you do, meaning snobbery. Professions are discriminated against in America because ancestry and noble blood isn't uh, very big of an issue, so professions uh, marry each other, and a profession isn't prestigious. If it isn't prestigious, then it's viewed as a step down. Uh, it's very much a class system in America, but this kind of dynamic really isn't talked about in America very much. Just like ageism isn't talked about in America very much. So the Hisabetsu Barakumen are not portrayed in this movie in a very positive light. Between this and half-human, half-human is definitely worse, uh, especially with the uh, the head priest of the village uh, beating up a... what's her name? But this one is mm, still a problem. It's why the VHS was uh, released last out of the kaiju set in the 80s, but it's uh, in its full version now, and we can see the whole thing and be grown-ups about looking at the past. I would give you economic figures of note, but we do not have GDP figures for Japan until 1960 and after. Well, thank you very much, John, for coming on as a guest co-host. Really good writer, and uh, we interviewed you at G-Fest. You should, uh, anybody uh, who's listening now, you can check out the interview with John on uh, the playlist for the podcast as well. And he has uh, just finished, released this last latest book, which is uh, Terror of the Lost Tokusatsu Films, which is uh, really good. I read it, and I have it here with me. You can look up John on Amazon.com, and you can find all of his books there. Uh, I also saw your uh, main uh, kaiju book. I have that as well, and that's also very good. And I will uh, be trying to get more titles uh, as well. And it's uh, really great that you're uh, such a good part of the uh, G-Fan community, and you have done a lot of research for everybody and uh, been able to enlighten a lot of people on the kaiju films and especially on these amazing, interesting processes that happen behind the scenes. Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate that. And I also really look forward to coming back later in the season, if it all works out, when we talk about Submersion of Japan. Which is one of the main reasons why I did this season. <laughs> it's actually that, uh, because it's one of my uh, absolute favorites, and there's not even a kaiju in it. I would like to dedicate this episode to Keizo Morase who was at G-Fest 25, and he is a master prop and master suit builder. Now, this is important because Varan is one of the suits that he designed, and it's it looks great. I really like it. It's wonderful. And he also uh, did the uh, suit building for Mothra, King Ghidorah, Baragon, Titanosaurus, and he even went on to do Gamera and Dimogene. So this is a very talented man. I was able to meet him at G-Fest. It was really nice. But he, this guy is like massively, you know, huge figure in classic uh, Toho, especially uh, kaiju movies. So very awesome. His, uh, his work uh, has been seen by millions and millions of people. Very wonderful job that he did. The next episode of this podcast will be 1959's The Three Treasures, which is about Shinto and stars the incomparable Toshiro Mifune. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patron, Sean Stiff. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Donating is worth it. It's the inside track to what's going on in the show, and you get to message me personally. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Schertel. And I'm John LeMay. And this is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.